Sure, good morning. Huh? <laughs> well, I hope you are doing well as this final weeks of July. It was a, it was a pleasant week this week, wasn't it? You know, nice to have a, a break from the heat and uh, as people are traveling, uh, I'm just looking forward to everyone getting back and being together again, but, but good to see you this morning. Take your Bibles and turn to, to John chapter 13. Uh, we've been working our way through John, looking at selected stories, and this week uh, our section is 13, 14, and 15. The story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, I would imagine, would likely find itself on the short list for most people of one of the most loved stories in the Gospel of John. Um, and, and the story is, is rich, not just in the ways it's such a, a, a personal story, but it actually provided the backdrop, the background that would frame all the events leading up to Jesus' death. Um, it modeled the distinctive way of life that we're called into as followers of Jesus. And what's interesting about this section, John 13 through 17 actually, it's such a rich portion of scripture, it's unique to John. Um, you don't find this story reported or recorded by Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And, and so John gives us a, an insight into a moment that we otherwise would not have had. Now I wanna begin with the setting and, and we're going to work our way through the story relatively quickly and then apply it and spend some time just wrestling with what it means for us today. Uh, verse 1, it was just before the Passover festival and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So just a, a couple of quick observations in, in, in what we're told, what John tells us here. Uh, the time was just before Passover. And for those of you who remember the Old Testament or know the Old Testament, Passover looked back to the time when, when God passed over the households of Jewish families in Israel. They were in Egypt, of course, at the time, and, and protected them from the angel of death and set them free from slavery. Uh, Passover is, was, is to this, one of the most treasured stories in Jewish families. Now, what they didn't fully appreciate, and it would become clear in the next few days, Jesus would become the Passover lamb uh, that would purchase their freedom. Um, we also knew that Jesus, very interesting, Jesus knew his hour had come. If you've been reading through the Gospel of John, you've noticed a phrase that, that appears a number of times um, in the Gospel of John, and, and Jesus simply says, my time has not come. You see that repeated. People were pressuring Jesus to step into things, and his, his common, his reply was, was, my time hasn't come. Uh, the time for Jesus to accomplish the purpose for which he came to earth, ultimately to die for the sins of people, was not yet. That time had arrived. It was now. The time had come. And it's a direct contrast to, to everything we've read in the Gospel of John and and we, we also discover, and I, I love the expression here, Jesus loved his own to the end. 
he had faithfully and deeply loved those who had followed him. And very interesting, and in, in some ways gives us a unique lens into this story, the devil prompted Judas to betray Jesus. This, this otherwise serene, tender, final moment of Jesus before his death would be marked by intense drama. Jesus would be betrayed by one of those he had loved so well. One that was among them, one who sat around the table with him. But the phrase I wanna, I wanna park on for just a few minutes is verse three. Jesus knew who he was. Um, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things, on, he, he understood. Um, and, and what we see in verse three is the strength of Jesus' self-awareness. He understood his authority. He he understood the Father had put all things under his feet. He understood his origin. He had come from God. He understood his future. He was returning to God. He knew that he could have stopped in its tracks the betrayal by Judas that led to his arrest, death, and and death. Could have stopped it cold. In a moment. And, and so what happened that evening, it's, it's why the evening had such a, a powerful display because it was so unexpected for the Son of God. So unlike uh, the honor that he deserved as a Son of God. Well, verse four, so he got up from the meal took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. Doesn't say a word. Just stands up. Wraps a towel around his waist. Pours water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Without saying a word, Jesus stepped away from the table, removed his clothing, or his outer clothing, and began moving from disciple to disciple to disciple and washed their feet. And and what what we see is the ease, just the ease and spontaneity of Jesus' humility is stunning. Um, You know, if, if you've ever experienced someone washing your feet, um, or if you've ever been in a service where you're washing others' feet, it's just awkward, right? It's awkward. Um, in part, because the gesture of washing someone's feet is, is so personal. We don't touch each other's feet. Um, good reasons <laughs> we don't touch each other's feet, you know, we, but we don't touch each other's feet. And, and so everything inside of us resists. Washing someone's feet or having someone wash our feet. And, and in the story, Peter did just that. Peter resisted it. Now, as we're going to see, Peter's reasons were different. In some ways, even noble. He came to Simon Peter And Simon said to him, are you going to wash my feet? Really? And just in a a dismissive way. 
And Jesus replied, you, you don't realize what I'm doing. You don't understand what I'm doing. Later you will. Later you'll understand it. Uh, no, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus said, well, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Well, okay, Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands, my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet, and though their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. Of course, talking about Judas. For he knew he was going to betray him. And that's why he said not everyone is clean. So in this moment, Peter just refused to allow Jesus to wash his feet. Um, Peter was being Peter. <laughs> um, you know, never halfway anything with Peter. All or nothing with Peter. All in or all out. There was no middle ground with Peter. <laughs> um, no halfway moment with Peter. And as you know, the story of Peter, it from time to time landed him in trouble, but you were never in doubt about what Peter was thinking. You know, and there's a part of me that finds that refreshing because you can trust that. You know, you know exactly what a guy like Peter's thinking about. And, and Peter's resistance, I, I think, had largely was honest. As far as he was concerned, Jesus washing his feet was an inappropriate gesture. Um, it needed to be the other way around. And Peter's instincts were spot on. They were correct. This was all backwards. This was not the way uh, this should have been played out. And, and Jesus made it clear that Peter didn't appreciate what he was doing. And after a brief exchange, Peter wanted a full bath. Um, and I think Jesus, and I, I can envision or imagine Jesus with a, with a warm smile after Peter says, okay, okay, wash my head, my hands, my whole body. Jesus with a warm smile simply says, Peter, that's not necessary. Um, and when finished, Jesus then just sat down, put his outer clothing back on, and he rejoined the disciples at the table. And as he was so prone to do, uh, Jesus asks insightful questions. And as he sits back down, here was his question. Do you understand what I've done for you? Um, you know, my suspicion is that once Jesus sat down and asked the question, um, he just sat there and uh, allowed them to wrestle with the question. And you've been in those moments. It's just an awkward silence where somebody say something and Jesus says nothing. Initially just allows it to kind of settle and linger and, and, and I, I can imagine Jesus just kind of looking around at each disciple around the table. And finally, Jesus breaks the awkwardness. In verse 13, says, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's who I am. That's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. 
Very truly, I tell you, a servant is greater than his master, and nor is, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus' very earthy expression of humility, washing the feet of his disciples, was a metaphor for everything Jesus modeled with his life. It became, in some ways, next to his death, the capstone that simply said, this is the way I've lived. And this is the way I want you to live. Uh, a little later in the same chapter of John 13, uh, Jesus brought even more clarity to what he had done. When he wrote, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, and remember, he had loved them well to the end. You know, just as you've, what you've experienced from me, you must love one another. And by this, by, by loving one another, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so Jesus provided a pattern for the way we live our lives. And, and I would summarize it like this. Washing feet means making ourselves small to serve others. Making ourselves small to serve others. Well, this is a familiar story. Um, most of you have heard it many times. You know the story. And so as I revisited the story this week, I found myself asking myself a couple of questions. And so you get the questions too. Uh, for example, could Jesus have been any more clear? Could he, could he have said this any more clearly? Um, I've given you an example that you should do as I've done for you. And now that you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. And this is the way everyone will know that you are my disciples. Could it have been said any more simply than that? And, and so it begs the question, why is this so hard for us? Or, or if I could push it a little bit farther, why is it so rare? And it caused me to wonder, do we understand what Jesus modeled? And so what I want to do for the next few minutes is I want to wrestle with this question a little bit. What does foot washing look like today? Obviously, our tradition doesn't practice on a normal basis the, 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 the practice of foot washing. What does it look like today? And I, I could use some very general statements. For example, it's the ease and spontaneity by which we do for others things that are humbling and awkward because of our love for Jesus. Humbling and awkward. You know, that we, we, we say, oh, that's, that's kind of awkward. <laughs> and, and yet in humility, our, our love for Jesus causes us to move into the space and we touch people with gestures that are very personal, up close, not from a, not from a safe distance. We, we step into their private space, if you will, and we begin to love them in very personal ways that touches them in real ways. 
And, and, and when these acts of humility, when these, these gestures of, of washing feet ha- happen, these acts of humility reflect God's goodness in memorable ways. I'm sure the disciples never forgot this moment. And if ever you step into someone's life or someone steps into your life in, in a time that you know how awkward and humble it is, we don't forget those, do we? The presence of God just just kind of invades the space. Um, I, I heard a story just this week, and I, by the way, I have permission to share it. I'm not going to mention names, uh, but I spoke to one of the people involved and, and, and have permission to share the story. Uh, someone who's a part of our church family um, has skin cancer, and the skin cancer uh, has required a graft, skin graft procedure. And on the back side of the procedure, the graft requires detailed attention. Taking off old wraps and cleaning, cleaning the grafts and applying new ointments and new wraps twice a day. Um, well, well, his wife needed to be out of town, and so another friend from Grace uh, came to their house twice a day for a week to care for his wounds while his wife was away. That's it. That's it. A story like this epitomizes washing the feet of another. It's humbling, maybe awkward, personal, close. And I, I, as I was thinking about this week, there are many other stories like this around the Grace family. It wasn't hard to begin creating a list. Of, of the ways that this goes on. But, but I had to kind of poke and hide a little bit because part of the, or poke and, 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 and uncover a little bit because part of the beauty of washing feet and washing feet stories is that they generally occur out of sight and off the radar. That's the nature of them. Uh, when, when we're washing feet, we're, we're not doing it to be noticed, but to quietly love and serve people well. And, and we're not announcing it. We're just doing it. It's a spontaneous gesture. I, I read something this week that, or a couple of weeks ago actually, that has just lingered with me for weeks now. Um, Jesus always leads us to littleness. It's the place where misery and mercy meet and the place we encounter God. See, Washing feet is choosing to step into a place of littleness. And when we do, God just shows up. Well, stories like the one I shared with you do uh, reflect part of the answer to what does washing feet look like today. But I'd like to speak, and I'm going to kind of, I know I'm going to, I want to challenge you to think about this in a different way. And I'm going to talk about another expression of of foot washing that I think we rarely think about, but need to. And I I need to set it up. And so I'm going to take a few minutes, and I'm going to kind of set something up a little bit, and then I'll come back, and I'll, uh, for those of you who are saying, tell me what to do, tell me what to do, tell me what, I will get there, (laughs) okay? I'll get there, I promise you. Um, you know, what I, and, and what I want to talk about is probably or likely more awkward and more humbling than the serving of people's physical needs. 
It's how we handle our relationships with each other. Um, Over the last number of years, I have been learning a lot about what is called family systems. Maybe you're familiar with the term. And the role that family systems play in all our relationships and in our spiritual development. It's, it's been quite a learning curve for me. I've five or six years in and um, wow, oh my gosh, how helpful. Um, in simple terms, family systems is what happens when people are together over time. You spend time together over time, you become a family system. Um, Our families of origin, of course, are the primary family system. And as as we grew up in our family, uh, there were interpersonal dynamics that influenced how we learned to relate to one another. And let me kind of walk this through and you'll go, oh yeah, I get that. Oh yeah, I know that. Um, These interpersonal dynamics uh, and uh, some obvious, uh, simple illustrations would be things like birth order. Birth order often influences how we function within the family. The oldest kind of has a personality, the young, middle child, we know all that, don't we? Birth order, a gender, personality, those are the obvious illustrations of some of these dynamics at work. Well, families develop their own personality or way of living together. And and it just kind of emerges. It's not like most families sit down and say, let's design a roadmap for the way we are going to live together. It just happens. Dynamics emerge and we bring our past with us and, and, and people, human beings, kids, we're, we're, it's how we find things like safety and security and, and how we feel affection and find approval and different members of the family system take on different roles within the family. I I started making a list. Leader, follower, challenger, confronter, compliant, peacemaker, rescuer, abused, abuser, victim. We take on roles. And those roles begin to shape. Uh, in my family system, for example, my father was absent and abusive. I was the oldest, or I am the oldest in, in my, my family, and so my mother leaned on me to support her and to step in because my dad was absent. And I kind of become a de facto responsible surrogate husband and father to my siblings. And, and so my family environment wasn't a very safe environment. And it shaped, profoundly shaped, and, and, and I would say it harmed my relationship with my siblings that continue into our adult lives. Um, it also shaped how I relate to God, how I relate to people. Um, from my family system, I learned that I have to take care of myself because my parents won't take care of me. That's what I learned. That's, that was my family system. Um, 
Trusting God and trusting others has been a challenge for me my whole spiritual life because I learned in my family system that trusting other people wasn't a safe thing to do. Um, and, and so I was drawn into this, you know, caring for my brothers and sisters and, and, and it, it wasn't something I welcomed or wanted. Um, and so even today, even today, um, I can have a love-hate, passive-aggressive tendency to take care of people. I love doing it, and I hate doing it. And as I reflect upon that, it comes from my past and from my family of origin. That was the role I was expected to play in my family. I didn't want it, I didn't welcome it, but that was the role that I played. Now, my guess is you're, you're already thinking about the roles you played. <laughs> and who you were in your family system, you know, growing up. Well, the patterns that we form in our family system are strong. And they're resilient. It's why, and I I know you've experienced this, it's why when families come together as adults, many years later, grown kids with their own families, we get back together and we fall back into the ways we related within our families when we were growing up. It's just like, it's, it's as if there are unwritten rules in place that are like this large magnet called family DNA. And it pulls us back into the roles we played when we were growing up. And I, I, I've, I've experienced this in my own family. And you kind of shake your head and, and you go, where in the world? And ah, uh, ah, uh, it's just, that's the way I operated back home when I was 16. And, and here's what's curious about this. We don't even have to think about it. It just happens. Uh, even sometimes we've experienced in our family over the past month, we were even talking about it before the family got together and said, let's not let this happen. And we got together and it happened. <laughs> it, they're, they're strong, powerful influences. Well, we also carry these relational patterns into other adult relationships. So let me kind of push it very directly. I'd like you to think about Grace Church as an extended family system. In fact, we are a collection of family systems. Maybe gives us a clue as to why relationships get so murky at times. We're a collection of family systems. And all of us bring with us our histories, our hurts, our habits. We bring with us our learned roles, our patterns of relating. They all come with us. And so the ways we learn to relate within our family, we bring right into the ways we relate within our spiritual family. Leaders and followers, challengers and confronters, uh, peacemakers and rescuers, abused and abuser, victims. It all comes with us. And and here's, and this is important. This is important. Um, The patterns that are embedded in our lives are often hidden. And here's what's so interesting about these patterns. They're hidden not only to others, but often to ourselves. Unless... By the grace of God, we've learned to notice them. And so 
we enter life with each other and we begin connecting to people and we come to a church family and we begin getting to know people and we're in relationship and, and we respond to one another in ways that seem very natural to us. Um, it's who we are. It's most familiar to us. And, and we might even say something like, it's, it's just who we are. And it can be often really unhealthy, but it's just who we are. Our family system has shaped who we are, and we bring it with us. And what I'd like to do for a moment, and there, there's good things that happen, but I'd like to kind of take a look at one component. The, I'd like you to think about these hidden, these hidden patterns as relational landmines. And we bring them into all of our relationships with one another. Whatever, as adults, in your marriages, with your kids, your grandkids, your places of work, where you, where you play, we bring them with us in the Grace Church. Now, sometimes we can step on one of these relational landmines, and boy, do we know it right away. <laughs> the relationship just blows up. The nature of what happened, angry words, angry emotions, Blaming, pointing fingers, looking for people to agree with us, take our side. We dig in, we assume uh, very defensive postures and friendships end. We know right away, don't we? And we all had those moments. You step on one of those and boom. Other times, and in some ways this is more problematic. I mean, when, when one goes off and you know about it, okay, at least you know what you're dealing with. Other times, we step on a relational landmine and we don't know it. at least not right away. But if we're paying attention, signs begin to show up that we've stepped on one. A friend becomes, starts to withdraw from us. Um, they're more distant. Uh, for some reason, they're no longer responding to our texts or returning our calls. Um, we start hearing excuses for not having time to get together. Or we, we hear mixed messages. They tell us we're fine, or they're fine, but we just know, we just feel it. We can sense that something's not right. And, and often what happens is they are talking to other people about what's wrong, but they're not talking to you. I learned of an interesting description I was reading in a, in a book a couple of weeks ago by, by an author, Steve Cuss, and, and he used the phrase, phantom strikes. A phantom strike is when someone takes a shot at you by speaking to someone else. And they may be telling others what's wrong. They're not talking to you, of course. And they may even surround it with all kinds of spiritual-sounding language, but behind it is a passive-aggressive hidden agenda. It's a phantom strike. And it's very hurtful when we learn about what was said. It stirs all kinds of fear and anxiety. We wonder, I wonder if, how many people think this about me. And family systems patterns show up all the time within a church family. They show up in our personal relationships as we navigate our friendships. 
And over the years, we've all, I'm not, I'm sharing things with you that we've all experienced. Over the years, too many friendships are fractured by people saying hurtful things or responding in hurtful ways. Uh, People not pursuing a relationship in thoughtful ways or not reciprocating to the ways you've loved them well. People going silent. Uh, People not knowing how to work through political differences or parenting differences. And people becoming too strident or more often than not just going silent. And the result is anxiety. The result is conflict. We distance ourselves from one another in some cases, quietly, some cases not so quietly, <laughs> and people leave churches. Uh, we also see it in, in trying to lead a church, and as we navigate change and the differences of opinion that, that always exist, we bring who we are into those conversations. The result is the same, anxiety and conflict. We distance ourselves from one another Sometimes quietly, sometimes not so quietly, and people leave. It's a real thing, isn't it? And this is just kind of kind of going on. So here's now I'm going to get to the point. So I had to kind of frame something because too often we talk about relational conflict in a way that simply says just just choose to do it different, just do it differently. And we underestimate how deeply embedded some of these patterns are into the way we think and operate. And just choosing can be a challenge. Can it? Can it not? So here's my, here's my maybe the most important question of the morning. What if washing one another's feet looked like handling our relationships in healthier ways? Uh, what if... Washing one another's feet was a humbling and awkward desire to break free of relational patterns that while they feel natural to us, it's not who we are in Christ and it's not who Jesus calls to be as a family. And washing feet is the way we break free of those patterns. Now, you're probably thinking, what in the world would that even look like? I want to give you a couple of beginning suggestions for how we can wash each other's feet. And it's not everything that can be said, but it's a beginning. It's a start. And as I walk through this quick list of five items, these are things you could apply in your marriage, in your parenting. In your, your own family system, your, 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 your biological family system. But boy, they have relevance to our spiritual family system. So here's the first thing. Notice your relational patterns. Notice them. Um, notice when you feel hurt from someone, notice not just the fact that you were hurt, but why, what was going on with that person? What, what patterns are in place that caused you to feel or respond or react the way you are? Um, also, and this is where it gets challenging, notice the patterns people are experiencing from us. And, and so you're in a moment where something, you've stepped on something and 
Notice the relational patterns both in yourself and the other person. And often, noticing those patterns are far more significant to moving forward than the event that created it. So notice your patterns. Pause, take time, slow down, back up, don't ignore it, don't run past it, pay attention to it, notice it, name it. Critical step. And this is kind of the first domino to moving towards a healthy family system is noticing it. Here's the second suggestion. And this is where it gets humbling and awkward. Move toward the person you're struggling with. Move toward the person. Um, Be intentional. You know this, don't you? What do all of your instincts tell you to do? Move away. Every instinct says, says move away. Do the opposite. Um, and, and move towards the person with something like this. I care for you and our friendship. Can we get together and talk about it? Move toward the person. You see, we build trust when we are committed enough to move toward one another and, and we can only hear one another build and sustain healthy relationships when we're moving toward one another. Now, let me give you a little insight into why we, we tend not to do that and rather moving towards the other person, we tend to talk to somebody else. You know why we do that? Rarely when we talk to someone else are we looking for a solution. You know what we're doing? We're reducing our anxiety without accepting responsibility for the relationship. Rarely is it healthy. And so we move toward one another. Third, the awkwardness is going to continue now. (laughs) Listen. But listen to learn, not to defend. So you pursue this person and you take the initiative and you're moving towards the person and and the person agrees to meet with you and, and you come into the conversation with humility and a desire to understand their perspective, not to defend yours. You, you, you come in to listen, not explain yourself, not to defend what we said or did and why we did it. And, and humbling, absolutely. <laughs> Awkward, yes. But see, listening is the one thing that reduces anxiety in a conversation. I've had so many conversations with people that were tense and when I show up and I'm just listening, you can feel the person relaxing. (laughs) See, listening eases, listening kind of reduces anxiety. And here's a great question for listening. Um, Over the years, you've you've heard me suggest that you ask this question. I'm I'm gonna reframe the question for you in a moment. You've heard me suggest ask Just think about the fact, how are other people experiencing me? Do you even notice that? Are you even aware of of the patterns you bring and how other people are experiencing you? Or we could ask the question like this. You could ask, you could even ask the person this. I mean, imagine this question when you're sitting across with some of the coffee. What was it like to be you on the other side of me in this situation? (laughs) And understand. Fourthly, 
Acknowledge the impact our words and actions have had upon them. And so now they begin sharing with you and you're getting some insight and you're going, oh man, I'm so sorry for the way, what I, what I you know, just what I said. I see it, I get it. Um, see, acknowledging our impact upon other people affirms them by letting them know that their concerns have been heard and they've been noticed. See, too often we rush to forgiveness and we, we, we bump into someone after a bad exchange and you kind of pass them in the hall and you wear your car and go, oh, by the way, I'm sorry I said that, would you forgive me? And more often than not, who is that for? It's for me. I want to feel better. Taking the time to pursue and listen and acknowledge is now moving the relationship towards something. And, and as, we, as we move towards one another and we're washing each other's feet in this way, it, we're replacing the need to be right with a desire to be loving and to restore the relationship. And we surrender that. And, and we're, we're stepping in and saying, Jesus calls us to, to model something here and, and I'm gonna wash your feet. And then the final step is, then we're honest with our mistakes. We own them, we repent of them, we ask for forgiveness. I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, fill in the blank. Would you forgive me? Now imagine... Imagine what life in the Grace family system, our family. Imagine what our life and our family would be like if washing each other's feet with intentional humility became the way we did life together. <laughs> and maybe you wonder, is this, is this a thing? Well, think of it like this. When was the last time someone approached you in the way I've just described and ended up saying, would you forgive me? When was the last time that happened to you here at Grace? When was the last time that happened? Or let's flip it. When was the last time you approached someone like that here at Grace? See, are we washing each other's feet? And so what would it look like imagining a day Jesus told us, as I have loved you, love one another by this, by this, washing each other's feet in, in a relational humility and honesty. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Because who else is doing this? Why would we do this? Short of following Jesus. And it just points to something. So, I'll let you ponder whether or not this thought is a type of washing feet. Yeah, let's pray. Father, thanks for the ways the ways you just stretch us and you call us into something that 
Well, I've used the word is awkward and it's humbling. You ask us to choose to be small and literal and, and we, just, we resist it. I know I do. And Father, I confess to you uh, the times that I feel emotionally detached and indifferent and the times I have to navigate this passive aggressive thing that I love people but I get tired of taking care of people and, uh, you know, and all the junk that's in my life and, and I, I see the heritage, I see where it, where it came from and, but it's not who I am in Christ. It's not who we are in Christ. It's not who you call us to be. And so, Father, I, I pray for the Grace family. So many newer families, so many established families with long histories, new families with little history, trying to find their way in. It's, it's quite an interesting season we're in. But, Father, may we notice, may we notice ourselves, may we notice each other, may we pay attention to the ways that we bring our patterns into all of our conversations. cause us to pursue one another and to move toward one another and not move away from each other. Cause us to listen and understand and name the ways that we've hurt one another and then seek forgiveness. Father, we want people around us to see the love of Jesus on display and as we wash each other's feet in this very earthy way, mercy and misery meet and we encounter God. May that be true. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand together and sing your great name. A star sail, find their way at the sound of your great name. All condemned, feel no shame. The sound of your great name. Every fear has no place at the sound of your great name. The enemy, he has to leave at the sound of your great name. Find there.
I'm so thankful for Gary's challenge for us as a family. Um, one of the other things that families do is bless each other. And so I'm thankful to get to speak a blessing over you today. So if you feel comfortable, extend your hands to receive a blessing. Um, close your eyes if you'd like. Um, this is a Sabbath blessing from my devotional this morning, and I think it's very fitting. May this day bring Sabbath rest to your heart and your home. May God's image in you be restored, and may your imagination in God be restoried. May the gravity of material things be lightened and the relativity of time slow down. May you know grace to embrace your own finite smallness in the arms of God's infinite greatness. May God's word feed you and his spirit lead you into this week and into the life to come. Pray blessings over you today. You are dismissed. Thank you. <laughs>